Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show with Lisa and Nancy, publishers of Big Blend Magazines and nature photographer Margot Carrera. Welcome, everybody. We're excited today to welcome ecologist Carl Safina to join us on the show to talk about his new book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Um, I love this. This book is, is so, it's, it's sentimental. It's, um, good feelings. It's also going to make us look a little bit deeper in our backyard. So I encourage you to go to his website, carlsafina.org, and that's Carl with the C. So welcome, Carl. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to have you on the show. Welcome back, Margo. How are you doing over in San Diego? Oh, I am doing great. I'm loving the fall. <laughs> ah, I love that. Carl, um, I, I love your book. I'm, I'm knee deep in it. And um, like, there's so much meaning. And you even get into like the indigenous cultures. You you bring people and animals and birds, obviously, Alfie, the screech owl, together and you talk about your property being what only three quarters of an acre? Am I right? It's, it's, I think it's actually a little smaller than that. I think it's about two thirds of an acre. Uh, and we have a we have a woodland on the north and the east side, sort of wraps half of our backyard. So, and that's a that's about thirty acres. But we're we're in the suburbs pretty much, and. Um, Across the street, there's a little stream that runs into a couple of mill ponds that runs into the bay that's about half a mile away. So we're sort of on the edge of the suburbs here. Wow. And so this kind of is a lesson for all of us to kind of look in our backyards a little bit to realize what's happening and that we can have these relationships with animals. But um, obviously, you being an ecologist, and I know that you have every, you know, all the degrees and permits to you know, look after a sick little, you know, baby screech owl and bring the screech owl home and, and care from not all of us have that ability, right? And maybe shouldn't do that. So I, I kind of want to start with that about what happens when we find a baby bird? <laughs> what should we do? <laughs> well, in a lot of places, there are wildlife rehabilitators and wildlife rehabilitation centers. So a, a good thing is to know where they are. And just have that number somewhere, you know, so that when you find something, you know who to call instead of saying, oh, I just found this bird and it's dying. Who should I call? It's mm-hmm. it's good to know who to call. It saves a lot of time, especially when you're a little, you know, upset about something that you've just found. Mm. And it seems like you do a lot of rehabilitation in your mudroom, raccoons. Birds. We, we've done a, we've done a bit. I did a lot. I did a lot more when I was young, and I helped to find found a wildlife rehabilitation group that is still going on on Long Island, where I live, here on the East Coast. Um, nowadays, it's just a um, couple of things that we have found over the over the last few years that we have raised. Alfie being really in a, in a way the, the most amazing experience. Mm. And and that's you have observation, but isn't it kind of interesting where you can help nurture young to adulthood, right? And then you have that connection, and then they kind of break free and remind you that hey, no matter what, we're still wild. Even with dogs, and I know you have chickens too, things like that. There's always that little element that reminds us that I've always got this little wild streak in us, even no matter how connected we get. 
Well, that's true. Um, maybe it's even true for people, and maybe sometimes, unfortunately, so. <laughs> but um, yeah, sometimes I look at I look at our chickens, which are oh, they're always loose in the yard during the daytime, and then in, in the evening they go back into the coop to go to sleep, and we just shut the door, and let them out in the morning, and. You know, they're constantly foraging. They get a lot of their own food on their own. They they are very good at catching bugs. They sometimes prefer if I if I leave part of a, a large part of our lawn unmowed, the seed heads on the grass are what they prefer to the the seed we feed them. And there, so there's a lot of a lot of instinctual behavior still left in these chickens despite the tremendous amount of domesticated selective breeding that's gone into them so yeah um with alfie the owl it was um you know she's not domesticated at all and uh and yet because she was raised from a a a little chick who was near death she's tame some people would have said that she's imprinted and that she thinks she's a person and she doesn't know she's an owl but she has had two different wild mates over the last five years. She has raised 10 youngsters on her own. All of her owl instincts and skills are all working, despite the fact that she recognizes us and she's still tame around us. We see her almost every night, and it's a it's a magical kind of a thing. And it's just been a fantastic opportunity to watch wild owls doing their thing at point blank range because the the mother is uh you know completely part of our part of our family and part of our life here and just just she just doesn't have any concerns about us being right there or right even right next to her or right next to her young ones even though she's been free living for five years mm-hmm it's it's amazing. Um, we were at a at Tiffany's Bed and Breakfast in Arkansas, just outside Hot Springs National Park, and they have like over sixty acres of woodlands. and And we're sitting on the patio, like the front. They have a big wraparound porch, I should say, not a patio. And it was wine time, and we're all sitting there. Sorry, I know it's coffee time for Marco and you. Right. <laughs> it's wine My time. My husband then. brought me some. Look that. Oh, good! Yay! <laughs> so, um. We were sitting there and the fireflies were coming up. It was like the end of July, beginning of August, and these fireflies were coming up. And we saw this, these dark shadows kind of descend down and come up. And like you say in your book, there was no sound. So we were like, what is this? And they turned out to be barred owls. And every evening, none of us want, we didn't want to leave the B&B because like there's this, there were a barred, a barred owl family, husband and wife. I'm just saying husband and wife. I don't know. And they had their little young owlets that they were teaching to hunt after the fireflies, but they were quiet. And so this became like, who cares about TV when you've got owls in the front yard? You know, is that how it's like at your house? Like, and I want people to kind of understand like that our backyards can be these habitats and we can coexist. And I think your book really proves that coexistence like that. Yeah. I think coexistence is really the key word. Um, and as far as you can't hear them flying, yeah, Alfie flew right between me and a, a magazine photographer who was here last night. It was about about 9 p.m. 
had been dark for a couple of hours. We were waiting for her to show up. And we were both standing on the deck because we, we could hear her singing. And then we saw her. And um, she flew right between us. And you could not hear any sound. If you had your eyes closed, you would have no idea that an owl just flew one foot away from you. Amazing. Amazing. It, we, yeah, owls are, they're interesting because I also think you touch on this in the book too, that there's this, like they're creepy and especially in it's October, right? So we look at the owl's eyes and everybody has, it's kind of like they almost get the connotation of bats of being, and bats are so crucial to our environment. And I think owls are too. And I remember when, you know, Nancy and I traveled the country full time going to parks and documenting public lands and but before that, we lived in Tucson and, you know, we'd get up at four in the morning to walk and see, you'd see sometimes the moon and then the sunrise because um, it gets hot there. But in October, you would see the owls in the morning at the mm. moonlight and they would, if they were hanging out, there would be two together every morning that we would see and they would, they were doing like a dance almost and you would hear them hoot and everything, but it did seem to happen around moonlight. It, it What's going on with that? <laughs> with the moonlight? Well, I, th- I, th- I mean, as far as moonlight, I think they they actually just see better if there's some light, even though they can see relatively well in the darkness. The darker it gets, you know, the less well they can see. So we can see them better if there's moonlight, and I think they are more active for more of the night if there is a moon out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so there's that, and other cultures. They they project human fears and hopes onto owls more than onto other birds, mainly because owls have this very appealing-looking face. It's more of a human-like face than a finch, let's say. They are active in the dark, which for almost all of human history and, and current human psychology is a scarier time. Um, time when people really couldn't really go anywhere for the most part. And um, so some cultures see them as very bad omens. Um, in Europe, they were associated <clears throat> associated with the devil. I mean, in Europe, everybody was obsessed with Satan, um, you know, in Christianity. And then in, in other cultures they are revered or worshipped or they or they're believed to be bringers of good luck and good news so if you see an owl something good is going to happen and it and in an, an adjacent culture they, they see an owl and they think that it means somebody in their household is going to die so what does that have to say about owls nothing at all it has to say <laughs> about what what humans are afraid of or what humans hope for and then we and then we project you know and we do a lot of that in the world But uh, what we really need to do is what you said, learn to coexist with these other lives around us that we often totally miss or don't even know they're there. When when you were raising Alfie, obviously, and then Alfie, you know, you were worried about the feathers not coming through and, you know, so that, you know, Alfie could fly. And and Alfie is at that point, you didn't know if Alfie was a girl or a boy and all of that, you know, the baby stage. And then it's like, do we leave? Do we not? You know, do we let her out? Do we not? You know, this, it, it sounded like it was almost like, do I let my kid go on her first date? Do I let her go off to college? You know well, what I mean? It, was it, a it lot, felt like it, really 
like a, I don't want to say paranoid, but there was like a, it was worrisome. Like this felt I, I like was, this was everything. <laughs> I was always, I was always worried about her. I, I never wanted any harm to come to her. And we thought at first that as soon as she could fly, she would just go. We never had her in a cage, but as you alluded to, when, when her first set of feathers came in, most of her wing feathers did not appear. And so when her mind was ready to leave, she could not fly. And so I made a, you know, I mean, I really didn't have much of a choice because, um, if we didn't put her in a cage at that point, she just would have died flopping around in the backyard. She'd flop around for about one night and then a cat would get her or a, or a hawk would find her in the morning or something like that. So we held her through a molt so that I could see whether the feathers were going to come in and they did. And then at that point it was almost winter and I didn't want to just open the door for an owl that could suddenly fly into a world where there was not going to be much food. Uh, you know, since she had not spent the, the spring and summer and and fall learning how to hunt and take care of herself, just to let her out in the late fall with winter, you know, right on top of us, I thought would, would probably yeah. be fatal. <laughs> so we waited until um late the next spring and then started to i started to work with her letting letting her in and out a little bit i used to be a falconer so i i knew a little bit about um you know doing some basic training techniques and training her to chase things and and catch things by using a fake mouse on a string and you know then i thought okay well Either she's just going to be in a cage, which is a total dead end and was never part of the plan and not acceptable, or we just have to rip the Band-Aid off. And, you know, freedom is a very risky thing. But that was that was really the only viable choice. And luckily, everything turned out great. Um, a male came around. She laid eggs. All the eggs hatched. All the young ones survived and fledged. And once that happened, I knew I had a story that I would want to share. That's awesome. Margo, do you have any questions there? I know it's a heartwarming story. It really is. It is. It is. I I just think for the listeners, um, if you could start them out with uh, how how you two met and how you came across uh, Alfie and, um, and, let them and, and kind of share what what you felt at the time you you um first came across her yeah and um i say this because i, I myself in my own backyard um rescued a baby squirrel from the pool oh wow <laughs> yeah and and i know i have a girlfriend um online who rescued a squirrel so um the beginnings are are will, will draw people into your wonderful book, and mm-hmm. so I give you that opportunity. Yeah. So somebody found um, a little a little baby screech owl on their lawn that was almost dead, and um, screech owls nest in cavities, 
you you know it's a hole you have to go down <laughs> to the nest they can't fall out of the nest so how did this little baby screech owl who was dying wind up in the middle of somebody's lawn something was raiding the nest maybe maybe a crow or i don't know what but something was raiding the nest and and dropped this little chick and the person who found it called a wildlife rehabilitator and that person called me because um first of all they didn't know what kind of bird it even was it it was almost it was like unrecognizable and um and and so near to death that it was even more unrecognizable and uh they called me and i said well, that looks like probably a little baby screech owl and um you know because i had a lot of experience with rehabilitation especially from as i said when i was young um they started they started working with me and bringing the owl over here and then we said well you know we'll we'll do a soft release in my backyard and then the rehabilitator had to go overseas and the soft release didn't quite happen as planned because of the problem we talked about earlier that her wing feathers did not grow in properly so the release was delayed and uh, that's what happened wow and with birds isn't it really scary with birds because they've got such a little heart and such little bones when they're babies like isn't it kind of like nerve-wracking with birds especially compared to some other animals that may be a little bit tougher I, you know, not, I would say not particularly oh, okay. there, um, you know, I mean, it's not, you don't rough them up in any way. So, um, yeah. you know, how, how tough or delicate they are doesn't really enter the equation. Birds of prey are easier than songbirds because they can eat a big meal and they don't have to be fed again for a few hours. Whereas mm -hmm. songbirds, you know, you're like constantly trying to stuff a mealworm into a into a baby finch you know every 20 minutes or something like that that's that gets to be very very intensive but um a young bird of prey you can give them a big meal and then you can come back a few hours later and that's fine so i would say um birds of prey are in a lot of ways easier and also just their their behavioral pacing is more like ours they're they're not as you know constantly jittery as a little songbird and they're not bouncing all over the place they're they're content to sit for a while in in a in a spot and they they kind of respond like i think their their time frame and their time scale is a little more like ours i think less frenetic than a lot of smaller birds do you think that like you know owls birds of prey and even songbirds are they adapting with what the changes are to their habitat that humans with our human encroach, right? And even climate change. And I mean, there's so many factors and so much change. Do you think they're adapting with it? Well, to a small extent, yes. <clears throat> I mean, there are, there are a few birds that seem to do well around people, pigeons and house sparrows and starlings and have learned to kind of exploit some of the situations humans provide but most mostly were a disaster to them since i was in high school north america has lost about a third of its bird population about one billion fewer birds today 
than when I got my high school diploma. And that's mostly because they cannot adapt to having no place to live. And we have, you know, mostly destroyed their habitat with um, somewhat of the expansion of towns and cities, but even more so the expansion of agriculture and uh, and all of the all of the poisons and pesticides that agriculture uses. The um, you know, as a result of the latter, we have a tremendous drop in numbers of insects. Mm. When you drove across the country when I was a kid you were constantly stopping to clean your windshield because mm-hmm. of all the splattered insects. And that doesn't really happen anymore. Um, in my neighborhood here, if you look at the streetlights in the summertime, they used to be, you know, used to be a cloud of bugs and there would be bats zooming around eating the bugs. Sometimes there are no insects in the streetlights. And, and this is a, a shocking decline in the life around us. And that affects the birds because mo- almost all birds eat insects, even the birds that are specifically adapted to eat seeds feed their babies insects rather than seeds because insects are much more nutritious. Can we talk about the role of birds in the web of life? I always want to go to that because people like I remember when the avian fuel uh flu happened people are like oh i don't know about birds in my backyard and here comes that fear and phobia that as humans we managed to do really well so can we talk about the importance of birds in the web of life because if as we lose them how does that impact human beings so that we can save them well i think you know i mean i think it makes it makes the world emptier and sadder and lonelier for one thing one 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 terrible thing is that most people are never they're never taught to see all the birds that are around us. They don't, they don't know what's here. They don't know what's migrating or when on long Island, if you're a good birder in the spring migration, it's quite plausible to try to see 100 species of birds in a day. You know, if you really, if you go out and you say, I'm going to, I'm going to really try to see a hundred species today. You, you have a very good chance of doing that. If you know what you're doing and you're a good birder, about 300 species of birds cross Long Island or nest on Long Island during the year. But I, I guarantee that if I asked most of the people on this block, can you name 10 wild birds? A lot of them couldn't or barely could. I have a friend who's a high school teacher, and he asks the students exactly that question. Can you name 10 kinds of wild birds? And um, they get to about three and then they say chicken, duck, things like they have no idea. Why do wow. they have no idea? Is it because they're stupid? It, but no, it's because nobody's taught them. No, we, for, we have forgotten who we are, where we are, and who we are here with on this planet. Mm. And that ignorance is what we pass along rather than a love and a knowledge. And as a result of that, we don't take care of them. And as a result of that, things, you know, they decline more and more. So that's kind of the circle that we're in right now. It's, it's, it's not good for us. It's not good for them. They are the canary, you know, it's, it's the, as we lose uh, bird populations, we know that the environment is not healthy. You know, um, I, I, when we lived in Mexico, this is before the magazine, before we met you over 26 years ago, Margo. Uh, we lived in Mexico, um, for, uh, my, my 
uh, step-grandfather was going through all kinds of medical things and we moved them to a house on the beach and um it was really a very small house but it was we had a upstairs and a downstairs and i lived upstairs and we were working with a vet we were rehabilitating all these puppies that we found in a landfill so we had all these puppies with scabies wow. and everything and we were cleaning them and we all had scabies. So anyway, that's a real fun fact for everybody to know <laughs> about, but we were rehabilitating them. We trained them, we cleaned them up and we then brought them over the border with vet certificates and got them homes, which was great. But while we were there, there was an injured Kestrel and, um, and, and had an in, injured to his, his wing and it was fixable. It wasn't like a complete broken wing. And next thing you know, the Kestrels in the house too. So where does the Kestrel go? Because outside was full of wind from the, you know, everything. Well, I lived with a Kestrel. And then came the roadkill. And like you said, they only had to eat, like, slowly compared. Well, next thing you know, the vet came to do the check, Eduardo. And uh, he's like, I found a dead rabbit on the road. So this is for the Kestrel. And I'm like, isn't that gross for the Kestrel? No, no. So next thing you know, this Kestrel and I were roommates. Even with the roadkill, and I know that's terrible and it's not healthy, but like that was the situation. And this Kestrel and I became friends and there was this communication and he knew sleepy time. And I, you know, I'm a musician, so I would sing to him nicely and he would look and sometimes go, no, that really sucks. Mm -hmm. um, but we had this communication that I can't, you know, like I think your book really brings that in where you can't. You can write about it, but until you actually start to coexist, the beauty is is joyous and tender and fearful because you don't want anything to happen to your baby. Like they are family. They become this family. And this Kestrel and I, then it was time to release the Kestrel. And we got to release the Kestrel in the cliffs in the, by La Bufadora. And this Kestrel looked, blew up, came, looked at us, almost like a thank you. And took off. And I'm still getting teary-eyed about it. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But it was probably one of the most beautiful things and showed coexistence can happen, like what you have with Alfie and yeah. so many other animals, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. That's pathetic now. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it doesn't take much to get me teary-eyed either. So, <laughs> You, you mentioned avian flu. One, one of the things that all, all of these diseases that come from animals, they, they come almost all of them come from the domestic animals that we raise in these concentration camps where it's like a big viral experiment where the viruses can just keep mutating into new forms and spreading. You know, why, why do they kill a million ducks or a million chickens or a million turkeys at a time to stop the spread of these things? Because they start in these intense confined crowded and pretty dirty environments where you know we grow these birds that people eat um they are not al almost none of them are wild originated diseases they they start on these uh you know bird i i hate to call them farms because they're factories these bird factories right. it is it's a and and then the way they transport them i can't stand it we were in yeah. arkansas and, and then, see and then they get out and then wild birds get infected and then wild birds die by the droves 
so that's another really nasty aspect of our relationship with birds is mm-hmm. how how horribly we raise them for our consumption mm-hmm. and um the you know the diseases that result from that mm-hmm. even for eggs and i mean we've lost our heritage turkeys too there's a few farmers that like diesel turkey in in california Margo, I think they do well trying to keep our heritage breeds alive because we've got down to one type of turkey that we're all yes, eating. right, right, yeah. That's true you know? for um, that's true for a lot of kinds of animals that there there were all these different breeds at one time, and now it's down to one. Yeah, mm. it, it's sad. What can we do um, across the planet for birds and and Alfie's? Do you think we need to be more aware of our habitat, even if it's like, you know, an apartment with a balcony, can't we do things to help our bird friends, which would also help the beneficial insects? Yeah, ev- everything needs room to live. That's really the crux of it. But I do know some people who live in Brooklyn and, and they live in an apartment. They have a, a tiny little terrace and they they have some native plants that they grow on the terrace. That's, they call that their pollinator garden. And... um you know, it's available for some of the native insects. And of course, as I mentioned, insects are crucial to birds. Mm. And and writing, you know, about Alfie and, and you, Alfie and me, the book, Carl Safina, everybody. Um, do you hope people will kind of take a little bit of a bigger look in their backyard, start listening to the bird calls, start watching the cycles of life? Well, yeah, I, that's kind of the whole message is that there are these parallel lives that are going on around us. And we need to really develop not just the minds, but really the hearts to to want coexistence with the rest of life on this planet. Because we're, we're mostly taught nothing about that or or we're taught that it doesn't really matter, that they don't they don't really matter and that we're the only important thing. And I and I think very opposite is true that all all living things matter. That's the way the world really is. It's a world full of living things, and these living things make it made it possible for us to come into existence. And it's yeah, it's not our you know it's not really our decision or our place in any moral or ethical way to say what good are they well what you know what, what good are we for that matter that's the wrong question the 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 right thing is to realize that we we are all here together on the only place in the entire universe that we know of where there are living things and that's that's the most miraculous thing there is so mm-hmm. that's what take we care need of what we have take care of what we have instead of going to the moon and populating that right <laughs> yeah it, well yes i'm yeah um i mean <laughs> yeah. that's a whole other crazy don't, topic don't even, but, don't even yeah. get me started on, uh, <laughs> on that idea but it um, seems to me you know that really you bring up education being a key thing here and i think stories like yours is a huge part of it and adults need the education but it seems like in schools um you know, I haven't been to school for a long time and I haven't been to school in this country, but 
it seems like w- schools that are like in high school and things like that, it's like, oh, go into biology and you're learning about cells and, you know, dissecting frogs and stuff. Maybe we should start at the level of understanding and appreciation. Like there should be a nature appreciation class that happens at a very young age all the way through high school that's not just about cells. And yes, it can get into all of that, which is all fun and cool. But I think we go right into the science and the biology without the caring first sometimes. Well, yeah, the thing about, you know, learning about cells is that it's not taught in a relational way. We're not we're not taught what is what are the relationships of cells to organs, organs to organisms, organisms to each other, living things to the non-living parts of the world and the life support systems. That is ecology. If if you know nothing of ecology because no one has ever taught you anything about ecology, it's impossible to understand the most fundamental thing about the world, which is how all of these things relate. That's the key word, relate to one another. I I happen to be an ecologist just by personality, um, but then also very much by training. And I certainly think that, you know, in in my little perfect world, you'd have ecology as one of the core subjects like you know, let's say math is or or history is where you get a progression of classes that expand on it. You don't just you don't just get arithmetic one time in in your 12 years of schooling. You you get, you know, a variety of math classes and you learn arithmetic, you learn algebra, you learn um, geometry different aspects of it you should learn different (laughs) aspects of ecology or or you don't understand how the world relates to each other Hmm. and 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 you don't so what what do we know when we get our high school diploma we don't know where our food comes from where our water comes from where our electricity comes from where our gasoline comes from where our waste goes where any of the Ooh. material for any of the stuff in our house came from, how it was made, and how we got it. We know nothing of that. What we know when we get handed a high school diploma is how to buy stuff. That's what we're taught. We're taught how to be consumers, and that's what we're even called. We're not called people. We're called consumers. Right. That's so funny. We've done gardening shows where garden people are on the show, and they're like, well, for the consumer, and I'm looking at him going, you're talking about people listening. Like, don't call our audience consumers, but we right. are. <laughs> but we are. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for writing Alfie and Me. Margo, it is a, it's a beautiful book. Everyone's got to go get it. You can go to carlsafina.org. Congratulations on the release. We want everyone to read it. And I think it needs to go to schools. Don't you, Margo? I think it I needs do. to. Yeah. I think so. We, we could send it to some politicians, too. I don't know if yeah. they can read anymore. I don't know, but see, but that's the thing. They I wonder if our politics, our politics are <laughs> directly related to not understanding ecology, right? right. So that's, right. it is, it really goes to that. Um, always wonder, you know, look at John Muir having to get Teddy Roosevelt out in nature and see the yeah. stars overnight. You know, we right. need more of that in life and for mm-hmm. our kids um, really do. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, and thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Nice to meet you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show. Follow us at BigBlendRadio.com and keep up with Margo at MargoCarrera.etsy.com. <laughs>